please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of many peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, to the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the, mother of, um, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife beside the wives he had, Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboth. Jacob, went, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down to the, in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to, and to your offsprings. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread above to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, and the name of the city was Luz, called the first. At the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brittany. Guys, at this point in the book of Genesis, we're now into the part about the patriarchs, about the, the fathers of Israel. And so you'll remember, trace back with me just a few chapters, this guy named Abraham was called, that God just singled him out and said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. He said, I will bless you and I will make your name great and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God calls out this man, Abraham. He gives him a special blessing 
a special promise and a special mission. And he tells Abraham, you're gonna, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky, like the sand of the seas. You're going to be a numerous nation, and through you, all of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham has Isaac. And then Isaac marries a lady named Rebecca, who, like his mom, was barren. She's unable to have children. So Isaac prays for Rebecca that she would be able to get pregnant. And she does. Not only does she get pregnant, but she gets pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau, right? And so you guys remember the story that as these twins are being born, Esau comes out first, and it says that he's very, a very hairy baby, which I can't imagine what that would have looked like, but anyway, I don't really want to. So um, Esau comes out, Jacob comes out holding his heel, and that's why they name him Jacob, because Jacob means one that grabs the heel or could be translated one that cheats, okay? So Jacob comes out behind Esau, holding onto his heel. He's given the name, he cheats, and as you read the story of Jacob, you see that he kind of lives up to that name. Um, you guys remember the last couple of weeks we talked about how um, when uh, Esau came in one day from hunting and he was starving and Jacob kind of used that opportunity to sell him his birthright, um, to, to cheat him out of that which was uh, by nature his as the firstborn. Um, then you see that later on in the story, even though God had already promised that this blessing, this promise that this promise and this plan of being a blessing to all nations, God's special blessing, God had already promised that was going to be given to Jacob, not Esau, even though Jacob was the younger. He'd already been given that promise, but even still, he wasn't trusting that. And so he devised a way with his mom to kind of cheat again and steal the blessing that Isaac wanted to give to the older brother, Esau. So we pick up in today's text, and he's now running from Esau that the crazy thing about that plan is it worked, right? That, that, that Isaac actually gave the blessing um, to Jacob instead of Esau. And now Esau finds out about it. Jacob is scared for his life, so he hightails it out of town. And um, you know, that, that's a bad situation in and of itself. I mean, anytime you're running away from someone for fear of your life, that's a bad situation. But it's worse when the guy that's chasing you is known for two things, being hairy and being a professional hunter, right? I mean, that's just, that's just a bad deal. That's like being chased by a, um, a guy, a bear wearing people clothes, okay? That's basically the situation. He's being chased by a bear wearing people clothes. And things are so bad for him in this moment. <laughs> I find this part of the story really funny. Chapter 28, verse 10, look what Jacob does. Jacob left Beersheba, he went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and lay there in a place to sleep. His situation was so bad that, a, that using a stone for a pillow was somehow an improvement and a measure of comfort for him, right? This guy takes a stone, uses it as a pillow. Things are not looking good for this guy. And I can only imagine what Jacob was thinking. He tried to cheat his way into getting this blessing from God, even though God had already promised it to him. It worked, Kind of. Now the guy is running for his life away from his twin brother, who's a professional hunter. Maybe he's thinking, well, a lot of good this did. Look where that got me. He's not in a good situation at this point. He's been given this promise, he's been given this blessing, but the way Alan Ross puts what he might be thinking is this 
But were the promises actually his? If he truly was the heir of the promise, why must he flee from the land? Would God's blessing be his as it had been Abraham's and Isaac's before him? Nothing less than a sure word from the Lord would ease his doubts and give him confidence for the future. And guys, from what we know about Jacob at this time, based on his rap sheet and his behavior, he doesn't seem like he really has much trust in the Lord or desire to honor him, right? It seems like God is to him just the God that his granddad worshiped, the God that his father worshiped, but it hasn't become personal for him at this point. His faith, if anything, is just kind of a, maybe a belief in some vague deity that his dad and granddad talked about when he was a little kid. But then everything changes in this passage. If you look there in verse 12, follow along with me and what it says. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. At the top of it reached the heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. I was reading a, a commentary about this, and they mentioned this idea that um, the descriptions are getting shorter and shorter. So at first it says, behold, he saw a ladder that reached the top of the heavens. And on the ladder were, were angels descending and ascending. And at the top of the ladder, God. So it's, it's like the description of what he saw is kind of coming to a climax where there was a ladder. It talks a little about the ladder. and talks about the angels. And then at the top of the ladder, God. He saw the Lord. In verse 13 and 15, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Now this God that he vaguely knew, most likely that his dad and his granddad worshiped and had made this promise and this promise he tried to steal, but he's running away from his life. God speaks to him directly and tells him, I am that God and this is your blessing. It becomes personal to him. And I want to look at this story and see what, what do we learn from this, right? It's always a good question to ask of these, these narratives, these stories of when we read this amazing story about this crazy vision this guy had and all these things, the way God spoke to him, what do we learn about God and all that? We're basically going to look at two observations this morning. One is that God is involved in his creation. This idea of the image of a ladder, and sometimes it's translated stairs, it, it usually resonates with people. In fact, if you go to if you go to any Christian church camp, you go to any church camp in the nation, if there's any change in elevation at all, that path is referred to as Jacob's Ladder, right? If you guys grew up going to church camp, you know that's true. Like it doesn't matter if you're in West Texas and it's like a 10 foot change in elevation, that climb is called Jacob's Ladder, right? But it's, it's, it's a term that, that resonates because it paints this picture of the idea of um, bridging the gap between heavens and earth, between God and man, between the spiritual and physical. Makes you think of uh, the same word used for the, the tower in Babylon, um, the Tower of Babel, that 
that went, that people decided we're gonna try to be like God. We're gonna build this tower that reaches up to the heavens that we're gonna build a ladder or a staircase that allows man to come to God. It's this imagery that's, that's powerful and that kind of that sticks with us. And, and what God shows Jacob is like, look, that ladder's already there. That God is already interacting and involved with the people that he created. You just don't see it all the time, right? That, 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 that God has already bridged the gap. God has already decided we don't need to try to find a way to him. God has already decided he is going to choose to be involved in his creation. And that's what we believe as Christians. We believe that God is involved in his creation, that he's constantly involved even when we don't see it. Hebrews, just look at a couple passages that illustrate this. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says, he, that he being Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations, right? That we think about the rise and fall of major world powers and authorities and we realize that as Christians, we believe that Jesus, God is in control of all of it. He's involved, his hand is involved in what's going on all around us even when we don't see it. There's activity between heaven and earth. Acts 4, 27 says this, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Why? Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That, that Peter is there proclaiming like all these things that have happened around the time that Jesus was on earth and was crucified and people were plotting against him, scheming, and it looked on the surface, like God wasn't in control, that it, God was doing everything that his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. So we believe that God is involved in this creation. I think that's what that, that ladder is trying to point to is that there's activity, there's involvement between God and man. So we see that God is involved in creation. But more than that, we see that God is involved on a very personal level. He's involved personally. There again, you can imagine that Jacob, he's, he, he's fallen asleep and God gives him this vision and he sees this ladder, the staircase, and there's this, this frenzy of activity. There's just angels going back and forth, up and down. There's just a lot of interaction going on, but then he sees God and God singles him out. It's like he's able to recognize that, yeah, there is a God, this God that my, my dad and my grandfather worshiped. Maybe he's true, maybe he's there. And, not only that, he's involved, and maybe at one time he did speak to them, but then it becomes personal. Then God singles him out and speaks directly to him. And Jacob is floored by this, right? Like, he's amazed. He's taken aback, and he's awed, and he just, he's just thinks this is just a remarkable thing he's ever seen in his life. Look there in verse 17 and what he says. It says, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Later on in the text, he, he names that place Bethel, which means house of God. He said, this is the gate of heaven. This is a special place. God has chosen in this place to interact with man, and God has spoken to me here. Something that's really cool about this story is a connection that's made 
in the New Testament that, that this idea that this is a special place and it's significant because God has chosen to interact and make himself known, to reveal himself right here in this place that makes that place special. Jesus basically says, I'm, I'm Bethel, right? Look here in John chapter one, verse 51. He says this, and Jesus said to them, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That just like Bethel was a special, significant, unique place because God was interacting at that point with himself and man, Jesus basically says, the angels descending, that, that ladder, that, that connection between God and man, that's me. The full and final revelation of God to man when Jesus came to earth to make himself known to us on a very personal level. And that was a lot of the message that Jesus preached was that, was that God cares about you, right? I mean, you look at the Beatitudes and, and Jesus is speaking out to the crowds who were seen as mostly irreligious, mostly people who weren't seen as being very close to God. And he said, look, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. He's saying the kingdom of God is near. God is near to you. God cares about you and God wants to be involved with you on a personal level with you. Matthew 10, 30 says this, but even the hairs on your head are numbered. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. That God is so interested in us on a personal level that he knows and is aware of the number of hairs on our head. I think a lot of times, whether you're Christian or not, even, even if you're a Christian, a lot of times we can fall into this mode of operating like Jacob did before he had this vision that it's easy to sit back and believe that, yeah, I believe there's a God out there and I believe the God of the Bible is true and I believe he's involved, he's doing things, but to forget that like he, he legitimately cares about you, you as an individual, he knows the number of hairs on your head that his desire is to have a relationship with you that is very personal. I think sometimes we slip into this mindset of following God like a, imagine like a, a company of soldiers following a general, that the general is up at the front and we see ourselves kind of somewhere way in the back, in and among the ranks, that our job is to follow this guy and to trust him and to do whatever he says. But the idea of going up to the front and having a personal relationship with that guy maybe just seems like something we, maybe seems out of reach or unrealistic or something that we just don't give a lot of thought to. I sent my notes to Ron and Lance today and or uh, not today, I've been a little late. Um, earlier this week, and uh, one of them wrote back and said, man, when you're talking about that, this verse comes, comes to mind. I want to read this to you guys. This is John 15, 15. Jesus said to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So Jesus tells his disciples that they see him as a teacher and they see him as one they are there to serve, to obey. And he says, look, it's not just about that. I don't just call you servants. 
I call you friends. There's a personal relationship here. Let me just say this, man, some of you guys that are maybe younger in the room. I wonder if there's some people in here that are like Jacob, that maybe you're a student or maybe you're a a, a kid or youth in this room and you know that your parents worship God and you know that that means a lot to them and you've kind of You've kind of gone along with that, but, but, but a question I have for you this morning is, is that relationship personal to you? Is it a personal relationship with your creator, or is it just more of a, a vague general to soldier, I know he's there, I know he does things, but doesn't necessarily mean a lot to me individually type of relationship. And for everyone in the room, I just want to pose that question to you. I don't mean this as a, to convict you or to man, or to try to make you question anything, but just a question for us to ask is, what is the nature of your relationship with God this morning? How would you describe the nature of your relationship with God, how you relate to and think of God? Is it personal? Is it intimate? Does it give you joy and peace and comfort and pleasure to know him. I think a lot of times we slip into that, that mindset of just following God like soldiers follow general and not seeing him as a friend who wants to engage with us and know us and wants us to find pleasure and happiness in him. So how do we know God personally? Like how do we, how do we move in that direction, right? Because here's the deal for Jacob is that like he wasn't seeking it, right? He just laid his head down on a rock. Maybe he had his head hard on that rock. I don't know, but he was, he was out, right? He was just asleep. And then God just decided, I'm gonna make myself known to them. Here's the good thing for you and I is that God has promised us that if we will draw near to him, he will draw near to us. That we can know God more. We can have a deeper, closer relationship with him. That that door has been opened to us and God has promised, look, you don't have to wait and hope that one day he's going to bless you with some crazy vision. If you'll draw near to me, I will draw near to you. You don't have to wait for God to open up the heavens and do something miraculous to deepen your knowledge of him and to personalize your relationship with him. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing, it's pretty simple, is this. It's just simply seek to know God. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Psalm 27, 2, I love how David says this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I just going to be honest, sometimes that prayer is so far from what I'm thinking when I show up on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I, don't, I don't come here most Sunday mornings thinking to myself, one thing I would ask, God, this morning, would you open my eyes to gaze upon your beauty? And if you would do that, if you would open my eyes to let me truly see and come to grips with how great and awesome you truly are, That'd be, that'd be all I need. That'd be it. If I could have that, that would be enough. That would be the one thing that I would ask for, to be able to truly know and understand 
to have my eyes open to how great you truly are. Would you give me that this morning? If you'll give me that, I don't need anything else. To know God personally, it starts with that. It starts with approaching all the Christian-y things we do on a regular basis with that goal in mind. To open your Bible with the goal of, I want to know and see and behold the goodness of the Lord. To come to worship service saying, I want to see and know and understand how great God is today. Not just coming in with the mindset of, I need to be reminded of some things and be encouraged and stay on the straight and narrow. I want to know God. I want to deepen my relationship with him and see how glorious he truly is. And so it's a hard thing to describe how to do that, you know? Like, I feel like it's easy for me to stand up here and say, we all need to know God more. What, what does that mean, right? How, how do we do that? How do we, how do we pursue him in that way? I meant to bring it with me and I forgot this morning, but there's a, a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And I love this book, probably my favorite book I've ever read because he, he spends a lot of time explaining that. He explains what does it mean to not just know a bunch of facts and details about who God is, but to really know and enjoy a relationship with God. He spends a lot of time explaining what that looks like. So I'm gonna read a couple quotes from him. And he says it this way. Perhaps you've been acquainted with the Bible and Christian truth for many years, and it has meant little to you. But one day, you wake up to the fact that God is actually speaking to you, you, through the biblical message. But that is not all. You come to realize, as you listen, that God is actually opening his heart to you, making friends with you, and enlisting you as a colleague. Man, I, I'll go into this more in a minute, but I can tell you that I spent a lot of my life as a student trying to walk the straight and narrow, trying to be good, but with absolutely no joy or affection in my relationship with the Lord. That it was, it was that. It was he was the general, I was the soldier. I was supposed to follow along and obey and trust him and hope that in the end I would end up in a good place because I chose to follow him and trust him. And I would wander and I would stray and I would feel bad and try to get back on the right path. But ultimately that was my goal. That was my objective. And it wouldn't tell us a sophomore in high school that something clicked and God just said, this is it. Like, this isn't just about you following me. It's about you knowing me and finding joy and happiness and comfort in this relationship. Another thing he says is this. He says, you can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. And having that history, I, when I'm talking about something like this, I can't help but wonder in, in a room like this, like if anyone would, would describe themselves that way, would say like, I've got all the right notions, I've heard these things, but I've not tasted them in my heart. You can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. And the first step to getting there is simply that desire, simply truly seeking to know him. And there's some things you can do to help with that. One is just simply to reserve time. And I know this, man, this sounds 
so basic and so simple and it is, but, you know, almost when I was typing these notes, I put mate time, then I realized, wait, I think we're all very well, very well aware of the fact that none of us can actually make time, right? I mean, that, that seems to be the problem we run into most of the time is simply that we can't make more time. But it's a matter of looking at the, the time you have in the day and saying, I'm going to set aside this amount of time to do this, to know God, to gaze upon his beauty, to, to draw near to him in hopes that he would draw near to me and make himself known to me. Making time for it. Now, if you're like me, maybe you, maybe you do a decent job of that most of the time. Maybe you've got like some rhythms where you wake up, you know, you, 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 spend, you wake up a little earlier, you spend some time reading your scriptures, or you've at least made the time to be here this morning, you've done that. But maybe sometimes that reading scripture, just, it just feels like what we read earlier. It feels like all I'm doing is, 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 is reading information and facts about getting the right notions about God, but I don't feel like I'm really having joy and affection in that, that I'm just getting more information or reading the same information over and over again. How does that translate? How does that information go from our heart, from our head to our heart? And in that book, Knowing God, he gives this, such this great explanation of that. And he just says the answer is simply meditation. And now when I say that word, I think sometimes you hear the word meditate and you think like someone sitting down and trying to empty their mind, make it void of all thought. That's, that's not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is filling your mind with true things about who God is and what he's done in hopes that those, those thoughts would resonate, sink down into your heart. He says it like this. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about God. Its purpose is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision of God and to let his truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. Hey guys, I can just tell you like for me, because time is short, a lot of times I'll wake up, I've got like a little daily Bible reading plan, I'll read it, I get done and it's off to make coffee or get the kids ready or whatever that next thing is, right? Like I get done with my reading and then we move on. And I've been convicted even personally this week looking, looking at this, how in that I'm not leaving time to meditate, to, to take these things I've learned, step away from, from, from the text and, and say, God, how, how do I think on that? How do I apply that? How, what, how do I really dwell on that in a way that allows me to see and behold your goodness? How do I give that the time so that it can seep down from my mind into my heart? So we do, we do that through scripture. We meditate on truth. And our approach matters. We can't just, it's not enough to just read the text and move on with our day, but to meditate on it, to dwell on it, to ask God to use it and apply it to our lives and let it make its full and proper impact. Another way we do it is, uh, is through song. Um, I was telling my community group this a couple of weeks ago. I feel like in those times when like in my devotional time and I'm trying to spend time with the Lord, some of my sweetest times are after I'm done reading the scripture, reading the truth is I'll 
you know, pull out my phone or something and play a couple of worship songs and really go from like the explanation of these truths to the expression of these truths, right? Because we, we need both. Um, one of my favorite things about that book about Jared Packer, Knowing God, is that he has like an each, a chapter on the attribute of God. So I have a chapter on the love of God or um, the justice of God or the mercy of God. And at the end of each chapter, there's, there's a little song he quotes. And it's like, it's like the whole time he's explaining the love of God and how great it is. And it's like, it's like when he gets to the end of the chapter, it's like he can't help but just sing about it, right? That like, it's not enough just to say it and think about it factually, but it needs to be not just explained, but expressed poetically because it's so good and it's so great. That's why we sing here every Sunday morning. It's not just to, to fill the time, right? We do it because there. The preaching is an explanation. It's, it's explaining through the text who God is and what he's done. And the singing is an expression of it. It's a poetic, artistic way to take these realities and, and show and say that they're more than just ideas, that these are real, these are meaningful, these are deep, they're true, and they affect us. They make us celebrate and sing about these great, true realities. Now, now in my opinion, good, good preaching should also have not just explanation, but there should be some expression in that as well. And songs will not only be expressive, but also explain some truths that, that we can land on and then express our joy in those realities. But both are needed, and songs give us a great way to do that. In my opinion, it's the most helpful way to meditate, to, to make these, these truths that we learn about in Scripture sink down from our, from our minds into our hearts and then erupt out of our mouth in praise and worship and adoration of this great God that we've thought about as those thoughts have crept in and stirred our emotions that we, and our affections that we, that we erupt in praise to his greatness. And then the last thing is just simply through the gospel. And guys, these aren't, these aren't like steps one through four. These are things that are kind of all happening simultaneously. As you look at the scriptures, you're learning the gospels. As you, the, the gospel, as you sing, you're singing about the gospel, songs that are rooted in scriptural truth. But in all of it, it ought to be aimed at and pointed towards this idea that worship, like, Knowing God and it becoming personal is walking through in our minds the reality of the gospel. It's coming to God in prayer and saying, God, look, I know I've blown it this week. <laughs> I, I've done really dumb things that did not benefit me or others. I've run from your grace and I've run from your, your leadership, even though I know it's best. But you are good and you are gracious, and you have spoken to me and said that I'm forgiven because your son has died on the cross for my sins. God, and because of that, I, I want nothing more than to draw near to you. I'm not always gonna do it. I'm, I'm gonna start to, and I know that tomorrow or the next day, I'm gonna fail again, but God, help me to come back to you, to repent, to, to turn to you and trust you more and more every day, finding my joy, my satisfaction in you and not those other things my heart is drawn towards. That's the gospel. That we are sinners 
We rejected God by our nature. We're children of laughter, of wrath. We're against him. We want to wander. We want to drift. But God in his mercy has sent his son to take the punishment for our rebellion, to draw us near to himself, and has then offered us, if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That's the gospel. It's hard to explain this stuff, you know? It's hard to... It's hard to put into words the difference in knowing facts about God and truly being satisfied and having joy in him and having affection for him and knowing him being a personal thing that, that drives and fills you. It's even harder to talk about how to go from one to the other. There's not, a, there's not any little formula I could give you for it. But I pray that you would want it. I pray that if you're in this room and Golly, if you're like Jacob before this vision who just, yeah, you know, I kind of believe that. I mean, that's, yeah, that's what my dad believed. It's my granddad, my dad, they all believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. And Man, you don't know the joy of tasting the realities in your heart that you would not be content with that, that God wants more for you than that, that he does not just want to be the general that you dutifully obey he wants to be your friend he wants to know you he wants you to find all joy and satisfaction in him this is you would say with David if I could have one thing and that's it it would be to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to dwell in his temple to know him that that would fill me to the point where everything else could go away and he would be enough Let's pray. God, I just pray that for anyone in this room who's like, like Jacob before this vision or like me when before things change and I began to know you on a more personal level. There are people in here that you're, you're nothing more than a, really just a general and want them to walk the line. God, that you would draw near to us and show us how to have something more, how to have a relationship with you that's, that's personal. I pray in Christ's name, amen.